to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. This is our Wednesday show where we grab one or a couple of folks and niche down to a single topic and dive deep. This week, we have something a little bit special for you. Natasha recently spoke to Sam Chowdhury, the founder of Class Dojo, an edtech company that you've already heard of, and Chris Farmer, the founder and CEO of SignalFire, an American venture capital firm on TechCrunch Live. We thought it was a really amazing interview, so we've excerpted her chat with those two founders and put it onto this feed for you. If you do want to hear the entire TechCrunch Live episode, you can. We have linked to it in the show notes. But what's ahead on this interview? Well, we talked to Sam about how to play the long game in EdTech and what he would do differently if he could actually do it all over again. And then we talked with SignalFire about navigating EdTech in today's market and specifically how they're connecting kids and consumers through startups. Finally, we also talked about investing in companies that aren't rushing to monetize and also how to lever the outsider advantage. It's an amazing interview. I'm going to hand it over to Natasha now. Please enjoy. We're here to talk about my favorite topic, which is tensions in the startup market, how to build. And it's with two people that I admire a ton. Sam, let's start with you because we first met when I first started reporting on EdTech and how the pandemic was really throwing a spotlight on a lot of these virtual tools. Fast forward to today, you know, Class Dojo, in your words, not mine, is no longer really seeing itself as an EdTech company at all. So let's start there. Uh, you know, selfishly, what made you kind of look beyond EdTech? And where are you today? Yeah, thanks, Natasha. You know, I I don't know if we ever really thought of ourselves as ed tech, but I want to unpack that a little bit. So um, if you go back into ancient history, um, Liam, my co-founder and I, uh, we moved to the Bay Area for uh, Y Combinator's um, education arm. It was called Imagine K-12 at the time. And um, that's really where Doja started. Now, we both had backgrounds in education. So I went to this weird school, which insisted on kids teaching as well as learning. I, I taught after college. Um, Liam had been doing a PhD in computer science focused on helping kids uh, kind of learn in classrooms. Um, so, you know, we'd, we'd had some experience in the space, but I think moving to the Bay Area, moving to America is our first time living here. It kind of forced us to be um, kind of like very, very naive in a way and like just learn a lot and, and um, open and open to learning a lot. So, you know, we got out here and um, we spoke with hundreds of kind of teachers and kids and families um, early on in the first few months. And it was it was kind of an like maybe we were an unusual company. We spoke to all these folks, and then we ended up writing down kind of like a, a plan and a, a and a mission for where Dojo could go. And that's actually like it, it's endured this entire time. Like everyone who joins the company today still reads that plan. You know, one thing we noticed early on was that um, so so the mission we had for Dojo is to give every kid on Earth an education they love. Every kid on earth is a big ask. There's 2 billion kids on the planet under 13. Um, and so we looked around at what was happening at the time. And we're like, well, what's the plan? How do you get to 2 billion kids? <clears throat> and what we saw was, you know, there's this whole industry called ed tech. And, you know, it's a great industry. There's lots of people helping um, schools and teachers and kids, but um, very few of them ever reached billions of people. And, you know, one of the insights that we had early on was that a lot of uh, the companies in this space were really following uh, one business model, which was they were selling software to schools or districts. And so, um, uh, you know, to us, this this kind of seemed a little bit um, at odds with kind of the mission for us. In our, in our mission statement, it says we want to serve kids. Um, but if you're asking, if you're reliant on schools and districts as your paying customer, then I think there's a tension in there. 
And so we were like, look, I, I don't think it makes all that much sense to serve kind of schools and districts as the customer. I think we should actually serve families, the consumer as the customer. It's a bit like, imagine you were trying to build Airbnb. You wouldn't, in my mind, start by selling software to hotels. You'd actually build the product that hosts and guests want to use. And so that that's kind of where uh, our orientation was. And so from day one, in a way, we were really about serving the people rather than the system. And so we always kind of thought of Dojo as a consumer company. Now, one tweak on that, I think a lot of consumer internet companies know, um, I don't think they're necessarily built in the best interests of, of kids and you know, um, families and so on. And so for us, it was very important that Dojo um, as a company, and, and this is the orientation, uh, is, is a consumer company that's built in the long-term best interests of kids and families. And so that's always been kind of the guiding principle. That's how we built the company and the business model, the, the growth, all of it kind of represents that. Over time, you know, even hearing you describe it now, it's not just class dojo, it's dojo. It's trying to be, you know, broader platform and has been for so long. Chris, I would love to bring you in here because you met Sam before you ever invested in him through Signal Fire. Tell us a little bit about how the vision that Sam just explained sounded like to you um, as an investor. Was it was it scary to hear something that's trying to do something with kids and consumers like that connection early on? Yeah, so I actually met Sam when I was a general catalyst and uh, led the seed round uh, right when he arrived on, on, on our shores. So I've been involved since the very early days, even predating Signal Fire. And, you know, one of the things that I, I actually, to be candid, had not had great experience in the ed tech space. And that's one of the things that really resonated with me about Sam and Liam's approach to this was they were looking at it as a consumer product that was built not to sell software to schools and districts, but to be aligned with them and leverage the communities and the sort of trusted identities and caretakers that were involved in that to build a consumer platform that really was engaging to parents and children and allowed them to have more of a window into what was going on in the school to, to bring that into the home and ultimately to enrich their lives through education experiences, but also just a, a broader community um, and so that's been sort of true to the company in the beginning. And I think, you know, one of the insights that they had really early on was just staying really scrappy and, and not trying to monetize too quickly or try to, to sort of jump the gun, not over raise, um, but really focus on perfecting that consumer experience. Um, and, and, and that's measured by retaining the customers and the engagement levels, the way any world-class consumer internet company would work. And that was their their sort of thesis and focus from day one, uh, you know, while while also, you know, serving a demographic that's been notoriously difficult uh, to get to because these kids can't sign up by themselves. You know, the parents have to be involved. And so it's a much more difficult loop to build and and more constituents where you have to build trust. And that's something that they were very thoughtful about from day one. Tell me a little bit more about, because I definitely want to talk about that monetization plan and how that comes into play later on in Class Dojo's life. But tell me a little bit more about this first meeting and what stood out to you about Sam and Liam's approach. I, I'm very people-driven in the way that I invest. And, you know, it's about the passion and the dedication, the, the sort of mission-driven nature of founders. And, you know, everyone's heard those phrases. So they'll they'll come and talk about why there's, you know, founder market fit or whatever it is. But it was very clearly authentic with Sam and Liam in that, you know, they had worked as teachers and in doing a PhD in technology applied to education and learning. And they were just deeply passionate about that side of it. But they were also very high horsepower and scrappy and humble 
um, and really interested in learning from the consumer versus sort of forcing their perspective on them. And so, you know, and they had already at the very early stages, this was at the seed. And I think just after the demo day from K-12, which is now part of Y Combinator, um, you know, they already had a significant percentage of teachers on there and were already building this love and these characters uh, that persist today. Um, and so the, the children loved it, the teachers loved it, and they were already sort of building something special uh, from a set of founders that were clearly long-term mission-oriented and deeply passionate about the area they were focused on. Sam, I'll throw to you to tell us more about how you showed kind of customer obsession and interest in those early days. You're calling in from the apartment where it all started. And I think Chris is too. I feel left out, but let's let's get a little nostalgic. Like, what are some early ways you showed scrappiness when talking to someone like Chris or, you know, any kind of investor or potential person you were trying to bring on board on your team in those early days? I, I think we tried to be very clear, uh, if I'm being honest. So, you know, I mentioned this mission and plan that we'd kind of written up. Now, we didn't really know if that plan was going to work, <laughs> but, but we had like at least clarity over what we thought the plan was going to be. So, you know, just to um, fill in some blanks on that, and I'll talk a bit about the scrappiness. You know, the, the problem we started with, I think, is like one that everybody gets, that you know, most kids on the planet don't really get an education that sets them up to be happy, successful, to, to flourish in their lives. And that's like that's a big problem. You know, families feel it for their kids. Um, we were noodling on it a bit. We're like, look, this gets even more significant when you start to realize that you know the key to you know all of human progress and all of society progressing is really um, people, specifically people discovering some talent they have, developing it, and then contributing it to the world. Um, and so everything we love about the world we've built has come from this process of people discovering something special inside them and making something of it. Um, and we're like, well, really, everyone on the planet ought to ought to get that uh, ability that will build the best possible future for all of us. Um, and it's, you know, that's the world I think we should build. It's not the world we live in today. I don't think most people go through their whole lives, never really getting the chance to discover what's special about themselves. Um, school is supposed to help you do this, but it's a very hard job to do it for every kid. We're like, well, we should build, we should build that world. Like, and maybe we can build the company that moves us closer to it. And, and that's kind of the, the big, big picture. Just real quick, because I, I know there'll be a founder who's listening and is like, okay, well, I'm going to write my long-term plan. You know, is this a five paragraph essay? Is it bullet points? Is there like, you know, three sections, like what does it look like? Yeah. So, so, I mean, there's a Google doc, which is a couple of pages. Um, I, I think most good plans you can probably compre compress the, the version. I remember we showed in our seed deck was a couple of bullet points on the slide. So that, you know, th there's a very lofty mission, right? Like I'll be the first to admit that, but then you're like, well, how do you actually go about it? And it, you, then you start to think, well, step one is you have to get to every kid on the planet. And then you have to give each of those kids learning experiences they love. So you kind of break it into those two steps. And then we we're like, well, let's start with the first one because no one on, in history has ever reached every kid on earth. How would we do that? And then we kind of did some research with teachers and kids and families and, and kind of had this insight that, well, teachers actually um, uh, are, are you know, they, they're really underserved first um, and they really want to engage kids and families. So Dojo started life as uh, initially a tool for teachers. Then it expanded into a communication app connecting teachers and kids and families. So every teacher that signed up would add kids and families, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, we, you kind of took like this big elephant and broke it down to little mouthfuls, you know, and we, but, you know, we laid out like seven or eight different steps on this slide that um, Chris and, and and the team saw. And we were like, look, we're at step one. We have today 1% of teachers in America using it. And that was already a great progress, but you know, there's like six, seven other steps. Now, 
it's risky. We're like, look, we don't know if all these are going to come true, but if they do, and if we are able to build a network that could reach every kid on the planet, then we could build many, many great businesses and products and services that give kids better learning experiences than what happens in school. So those are like the two things you had to believe. Can they build the network? And then can they build these services? And I think we're just able to demonstrate progress every time we went to fundraise that like, hey, like this, that slide again. And here we are like two or three steps down the page now. Yeah. I mean, that's a you know dream come true for a lot of founders is to both be right and then also be able to visualize something so clearly. H- how do you go from this, you know, mission and, and steps to, yeah, like kind of going back to the scrappiness, like really beginning to answer landing those first customers? Like I said, we spoke with three or 400 teachers before we'd uh, rebuilt any product. We were arriving at this kind of thesis and plan. So those 400 teachers were expressing needs to us. You know, they were like, oh, like I, um, I have this problem in my classroom or I wish my classroom were more of a community. Um, and so we, we kind of noted all this stuff down. We weren't trying to sell them anything. We were just learning. Um, and then we came back, you know, six, six, seven weeks later, um, about a month before demo day. And, um, we had, we had a product for them. We're like, Hey, look, like we built this thing. We think it helps with some of the stuff you were asking about classroom management, communication, et cetera. Do you want to give it a go? And, you know, for, I think for our group in particular teachers, this was like a, this was like just the most unbelievable white glove service. No one does that for teachers, right? They're like, at the time they're super underappreciated. You know, no one really then earn that much money. They're not going to pay you a lot. So, but we turned up as these two kind of crazy Brits who are just like, we're just building something that you asked for. And does this help? And um, so that's where we got our initial group. And then what started to happen was um, word just started to spread. And, and we we definitely helped and stoked, but I think a lot of it was this real, you know, they would write in um, that first kind of 80 teachers. So they'd write in, we'd fix the thing that they'd written in about often that same day and um, let them know. And I, I just think in the early days, there wasn't really a good substitute. There's no like magic growth hack or anything. There was no real substitute for the kind of obsession that we had with like honoring and serving that initial group of teachers and then families and kids. You mentioned, you know, two Brits coming in and the benefit of being, you know, new and maybe in some ways naive. And Chris, I feel like that at some ways can break from the pattern we see VCs sometimes ask for, which is we want someone to have, you know, lived and breathed this topic for a while. I mean, I'm being stereotypical here. Clearly there's a ton of ways to get stuff done, but tell me a little bit about how you think about the outsider advantage at SignalFire and like when there's enough overlap between outsider advantage, but also being able to build a smart company in the space. It's a good question because there's a tension between those two things. It, it depends on what the end customer is. If you're talking about an enterprise application selling to the same customer on a new technology paradigm, like moving from on-prem to the cloud, often that adva- that experience is, is very advantageous, cybersecurity, those types of things. But for new consumer behaviors, you know, you're never going to revolutionize an industry from taking somebody who came from that industry and has been too indoctrinated in it. So you need people who have enough experience either as a, they're an end customer or in, in the case of Sam and Liam, that they deeply spent time in the education space. But at the same time, they, they weren't building an edtech company. They're building a consumer company. So they had to bring best practices that looked more like a social media company. But then they also brought like very clear principles that they were not going to charge schools, not today, not ever, right? And that they were going to make sure that children's safety um, was always a priority, right? And so they took a lot longer to monetize and didn't take any shortcuts because these were such important principles foundationally for the company that ultimately built trust. 
which felt made teachers comfortable with sharing with other teachers and with, with the children and the parents and so on and so forth. Because especially when you're dealing with the demographics that they were dealing with, that was really paramount that every constituent felt safe and and trust and long-term alignment and having advertisers that were going to try and spam you or any of those types of things, um, you know, would have gone from that thesis um, and from that principle. And therefore, you know, they, they took their time in making sure and had to stay really lean as a result to make sure they stretched their dollars to really produce that product that would create a magic moment for the teacher and helping to communicate what was going on in the classroom and helping them to be more efficient in communicating with parents and families, but at the same time was engaging for the children that had, you know, sort of world-class, best-in-class retention metrics um, very quantitatively from what you'd expect from the best consumer internet companies. Sam, I would love to hear kind of your take on that same question, which is kind of balancing the outsider perspective with also wanting to make sure that you know, you're hitting the marks of your VCs. One of the storylines of Class Dojo, if I do say so myself, is this long track it took before you even you know introduced a formal monetization strategy. A hard thing to pull off, I'm guessing, if you have investors knocking on your door. So uh, walk me through a little bit of how you balanced that. Yeah, well, there's actually, there's a couple of secrets here. So, so one is that we actually did our first monetization test maybe like six months into the company. So we actually had like some confidence that there was something at the at the end of it. But I think um, really the question comes down to like a question of alignment, right? So we like our view is we're like, look, we've got a very clear plan. We think that if we can establish a network that reaches every kid on the planet or could reach every kid on the planet, then we can build a, honestly like a generational business. Like you, you start to think a bit from first principles. You know, th- this is actually one of the outsider insider kind of tensions. We turned up here, and a lot of people are like, "Oh, you know, American parents like they don't they don't pay for education. They don't." You know. And this was one of these things that everyone just bandied around. Um, and we we're like, "Okay, like I guess that's the conventional wisdom." But like, if you reason it from first principles, and you actually it just doesn't make that much sense. Like you go and talk to families, and anywhere on earth, anywhere in America, and you're like do you want a better learning experience for your kids? And they're like, yes, I do. And so then you're like, okay, well, this isn't like a market problem. This is a like a product and packaging problem. Like they haven't been given the right thing. And we're like, well, maybe we could give them the right thing, but we have to be like long-term about that. So step one is build a network that could reach every family on the planet because the mission is about every kid. And then once we have the network, we can start to build great businesses on it. But we had to align with investors. You know, there's a big range of investors out there. Some want you know, the two-year return, someone, something else. Um, and we just laid out our thesis and didn't treat it like a persuasion problem. We were just like, is this a match with the kind of investor you are? And so I think being clear about the thesis and about the long-termness of it enabled us to find investors who also matched that. And we've been very fortunate. The, the progress of the company has been great every time we've got out to speak to investors. And so we've been able to find a good match. So kind of lead with it and be pretty transparent about how you are thinking about and that you're not not thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one thing I want to say is I think there were some companies that had the view of let's just get big and figure it out. And we were never in that camp. Like we had a very clear plan. We were just like, it's just a phased plan. Like once we hit some metrics on this network size and engagement, whatever, then we're going to turn some attention to monetization. And here's what we think we're going to do then. Um, but, you know, it would be silly for a 20 person team, which isn't generating revenue to try and do five different things. You have to be laser focused on the only thing that matters, the binary risk. Can we build uh, the beginnings of a network or not? Um, and if we can, life's going to be great. And if we can't, this isn't going to go very far. 
I think history would in social networking would argue very clearly that if you can get the virality, the engagement, um, and and scale in a social network, it will monetize. Whether that's a Pinterest or a Snapchat or lots of other companies that didn't have Twitter, that didn't have clear monetization strategies in the beginning. And so I think you know they were smart to to sort of look to that precedent, do some early tests, but have patience that they nailed the consumer experience first. Because if you try to monetize too quickly, you can break down what made you potentially valuable as a network in the first place. I want to talk about just some advice for early stage founders who are finding themselves in a you know different environment. Maybe two years ago, it wouldn't be crazy if people weren't talking about revenue during pre-seed raises. But now I'm hearing that that's a lot of what investors and founders at least feel like People need to have some sort of clarity and, you know, oftentimes like real money already coming in. And so, Chris, I know Signal Fire just closed a $900 million fund. You're probably seeing a huge fire hose of startup pitches right now. What's kind of coming up and what's your advice for, for founders who are not sure how much and, and how loud to be about revenue right now? In an environment like this, the public markets have corrected pretty severely and the valuations that companies uh, in the technology sector in general have are very depressed relative to what they were just a couple of years ago. And simultaneously, the merge and acquisition environment is you know, very cold um, and there's very few deals happening. So given the confluence of those two things, I think companies need to show very clearly that they can hit milestones to make themselves default, either profitable or fundable right with with enough margin for error that the macro environment isn't going to be fatal right and so that in certain categories that's going to be extremely difficult it's very tough to be like an autonomous driving car company right now where you take consume a tremendous amount of capital and it's very clear unclear how quick a bridge to revenue is going to be and so you really have to have deep pocketed strong capital partners and finance accordingly now a company like class dojo that was much more scrappy in the way that they launched and stayed very lean on the burn. Um, if they weren't going to monetize, you could see in years how long this capital would take you and all the different either scale or um, uh, other metrics that you might be able to get that would make it default fundable on the other side of it if you weren't getting to profitability uh, necessarily on that capital raise. And so I think that's you know, you just need to be very sober about what the environment looks like and that it may persist for, you know, a couple of years. So you just have to be very clear that you're going to have enough proof points of whatever they are that will convince upstream investors to continue to fund the company that you have or that you can get to sustainability on the capital on hand, either through a very low burn or through monetization and ultimately profitability. Can't go wrong with that. One question on of mine, and before we jump into listener questions, and it is maybe unsurprisingly about AI. And I know it's a conversation happening in you know every newsroom for sure, but every venture firm and company. So you know, Sam, I would love to hear how you're talking to other founders and entrepreneurs about this right now. Anything standing out in terms of best frameworks to think about AI and integrating it into into your product as we speak. Uh, yeah, I'll give you like our take a little bit. So I think, you know, there's clearly some like incredible magic uh, happening in, in like just the LLM world. And, and Chris, you'll have like a broader view on this than me. But one thing I, I think is interesting in education, everybody is now building the AI tutor, like everybody. And I'm like, we, we've got to think like second and third order beyond that. Like ChatGPT is a, already a pretty good AI tutor, 
Um, there's some improvements you can make and so on. But I, I think like once we get through this frothy period where everyone's starting an AI company, I'm like, where do, I think it's good to think again, long-term about where does the value really accrue? And I think like there's a, I've got a few theses on where value accrues like in general, but I, you know, I think one of them is where you ha already have a large store of private documents to train uh, some more of these models on more specific ways beyond the public documents that they're generically trained on. So yeah, that lends itself to companies that already are at some scale or have some kind of existing moats. So that's one area. I think for Dojo specifically, um, I, I think there's a ton we can do and are doing, um, and it will show up in a lot of interesting ways. But I think it all comes back to this idea of, well, how do you um, either get to, to more scale to reach more kids and families to serve um, or then start to give kids better learning experiences than just what school can give. And there's clearly some some big applications in each. Chris, over to you. I mean, what's your advice to startups looking to get in front of Signal Fire and just, you know, actually get investor money right now? I agree with Sam completely that there's there's a lot of, you know, overhype when some of these new trends happen. I think in some ways it's overhyped and there's a lot of companies that chase it. In other ways, it's underhyped and it'll probably have a bigger long-term impact than people realize uh, and so you have to think really deeply about what the delta between those two things is. You know, we have an investment in a company called uh, Super Teacher that is, you know, building that AI tutor. And a huge part of this is you can't just build it off chat GPT and have it potentially say random, inappropriate things to a young child where, you know, you, oh, you know, I love you or whatever it is that some of these, you know, uh, reporters have been able to get it to do, you know, telling them to break up with their spouse. Um, you know, so you have to be really thoughtful about the pedagogy and the methodologies of teaching, how you build trust and safety, very much the same sorts of things we were talking about with Class Dojo uh, before. And I think, you know, and and then figuring out how you build defensibility over time, because I, I think there's going to be a clear, you know, battle that comes down between all these different foundational models and LLMs that ultimately will you know, be really challenging to differentiate from one another um, without some sort of data moat or some sort of workflow or some sort of safety built in specialized to specific use cases that, that level it up substantially better than, than sort of the generic models um, are able to do. And so you know, I, I think having a, a tight story as a founder um, and really a deep understanding of how you're going to stay long-term competitive and differentiated uh, when there's likely to be overfunding and overhyping um, in the in the short term and that it'll take a while for the sort of the, the cream to rise. Is there a mistake people are making that you're seeing happen time and time again when they're an AI startup pitching you? Just like any red flags or just, yeah, common mistakes these days? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, it's like I, I I'm I'm old enough that I was there for the dot com thing where everyone added dot com to the end of their you know their their business plan. Uh, that does not make you an internet native you know company any more than adding dot ai uh, to your name today makes you ai native. It really comes down to how deeply thoughtful um, and experienced is the team in applying these large language models. Um, how much do they understand how to build? you know, defensibility into their business. Are there data sets that they're training on that may not be the internet, right? Like, so for example, we backed a company, you know, that was doing in the medical coding space using these large language models, but it, it's on appended data from Mass General Brigham's over many years um, that, you know, you're not going to find that 
on a search with Google um, or any of the chat GPT types of players. I mean, it's very specific to that domain and therefore much more defensible. And so those are the types of things and whatever the niche that you're going after, I think is really important. Thanks so much, Chris. Sam, I'm going to end with you with, with one audience question. Darsh is asking, you know, teacher burnout and workload are still a huge problem, especially post-pandemic. How do you envision this problem being solved further right now? I'll just answer for Dojo. I think one um, facet, like there's, there are very few times in life where you would expect someone to just go into hero mode and do it all alone. You're like, hey, teacher, please look after 30 kids, kids, make everything great for them and, you know, make sure they all find their passion and joy. And, you know, so, so I think like um, one is I don't think the teacher being isolated and having it all on their shoulders is a good path. And that's what we've done for a long time. So I think having families invested and families want to be there as part of this. They don't want to show up for one parent-teacher conference every you know, six months or something. They actually want to be part of the journey is what we found. So I think like the whole community kind of being involved is quite important. You know, honestly, I think a second thing is um, it is kind of crazy to me that kids are completely reliant on just like the one teacher in their school. Really, like kids should be able to learn from and with the best teachers on the planet and get incredible learning experiences from all over the world. So I think uh, finding a way, and we're working on some of this to to give kids access to more uh, than just what happens for six hours a day at school, I think is um, is kind of quite interesting and lightens the load a bit on the teacher too. Perfect note to end on. Sam, Chris, thank you both so much for letting me pick your brain. We toss it over now to the wonderful Matthew Burns. A big thanks to Natasha and everyone else for that episode. It was fantastic. I just love learning more about EdTech. It's good to bring some EdTech back. Equity is back on Friday with our news roundup. It has been a very busy week with earnings and a lot of startup news. So we will see you then. Stay cool. Bye. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week.